Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn with me to the New Testament scriptures and Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. We, as I said earlier, we begin tonight our evening sermon series in First and Second Thessalonians, and uh, usually our senior pastor has the privilege of leading out the the uh, first sermon in the series, but that has uh, fallen to, to my job tonight. So uh, just remember that it's approximately the year 49 AD, and Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they have arrived in the city of Thessalonica during the course of what has come to be commonly referred to as Paul's second missionary journey. And as they come to Thessalonica, Paul is there for some three Sabbath days as he reasons with the Jews from the scriptures, explaining and proving to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And it is here in this account, you'll find it in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and following. It is here that Paul and his company are accused of having turned the world upside down. And now, probably near the end of the year 50 AD, the Apostle Paul is sending this, is writing this, his first letter his first of two letters to the Thessalonians, and he's reminding them in these opening verses of 1 Thessalonians of the occasion of his initial contact with them. I'm going to read from verse 1 through the first three words of verse 6. Hear the word of the true and living God. Paul Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became. All flesh is as grass. And though the glory of man is the flower of the grass, the grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's bow our heads and ask for God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow together in your presence. We would readily acknowledge once again that we stand before you, the living God of heaven and earth. 
and that your word demands our most careful attention, indeed our most reverent consideration. For you have said that on this one will you look, even the one who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at your word. Surely, Lord, it demands our most believing attention as well, for you have likewise told us that the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. And so we would ask, O oh God, that it may not be said of us this evening that the word did not profit us because we did not believe it, because we would not submit to it, because we would not bow to the authority thereof. And therefore we sense and feel our need to cry out to you that you would be pleased to send your Holy Spirit that we may be taught of you, that we may be obedient to you. And we ask that you would hear us and meet us, we plead, in the teaching and the preaching of your word. For we ask it in the name above all names, even Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now as we look together here at Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians, the main passage I want us to look at is going to be verses 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Now, outside of that first verse, which is a typical Pauline salutation, a greeting in which he takes up a common literary form of the day and sanctifies it and makes it a means of communicating spiritual truth. Outside, I would say, of that first verse, the rest of chapter 1, verses 2 through 10, are very similar, you might notice, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 15, in that they form a record of Paul's praise to God for that which the grace of God had wrought in the lives of the people of God there at Thessalonica. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering. And then from that point on, Everything that follows is, in a sense, Paul pulling back the veil or opening the door of his prayer and praise closet and saying, when I am alone with God and I think of you and I think of the grace of God that has come to you, these are the things for which I give thanks to God concerning you. Now it is in the midst of this record of his own praise to God for the Thessalonians that we have this statement, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, 
but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And in the course of his praise, notice that Paul thanks God for this conviction that he has on behalf of the Thessalonian believers, that they are the elect of God, that they are chosen of God. He has this conviction that there at Thessalonica is a body of people upon whom God has set his love from all eternity. So you notice the close proximity of the connection between the phrases brothers loved by God and chosen by God. His distinguishing, particular, redemptive love, which always goes along hand in hand with his sovereign, gracious choice of a great multitude of individuals to life and salvation out of every tribe and tongue and kindred and people. And it is in the midst of his prayer of praise that he speaks of his confidence that they are indeed included among the elect of God. You're chosen by God. Now then, the question I want to ask is this. What convinced the Apostle Paul that they were chosen of God, that they were the elect of God? Was it because God had allowed him to ascend to his throne where the role of his elect is kept and somehow he managed to leaf through the pages of the Lamb's book of life until he came across some of the names of those people there at Thessalonica? You say, of course not. The very thought of that is somewhat ridiculous and perhaps some might even say blasphemous. But what convinced him, what convinced him that these believers were among the elect of God, that they were chosen by God? Well, it was rooted, I want you to notice, in the reality that the gospel had come to them in a certain way. Notice, for we know, brothers, loved by God, he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You see, I trust here, the connection in the apostles' thinking. He's convinced of their being chosen by God because the gospel came to them in power. The gospel came to them in the energy of the Holy Ghost. And it came to them with full conviction, or as another translation says, in much assurance. And that leads me to ask another question. How did the apostle know that the gospel had come to the Thessalonians in power? How did he know that? Well, there's only one way Paul could know, and there's only one way you can know. And it's in terms of the effect that the gospel produced in their lives. And the whole key to that is found in the verse that follows, verse 6. And you became. 
That's the effect of the gospel. And you became, verse 6. Now put the two phrases together. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then he tells them how the gospel came to them. And then he says, and you became. What do we draw from that? We draw this. Whenever the gospel comes in power, we become something that only the power of the gospel can produce. That's the only way to understand this. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20. For the kingdom of God is not in word but in power. You see, the gospel not only announces and promises an application or the gift of divine forgiveness to all who believe and embrace that gospel, but it also announces and promises an operation of divine power upon all who believe. And these two realities always go hand in hand together. So let me underscore them again. The gospel comes not only announcing and promising the gift of divine forgiveness, John 3, 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but with that it also announces and promises an operation of divine power. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. He is a new creation. And I think that one of the saddest things today in in the professing evangelical church is multitudes of people who would say, well, they they wouldn't say I'm elect of God. That would be a naughty word to, to a great many of them. But they would say, I'm certainly loved by God and I'm certainly a Christian. And you ask them then, well, what makes you think that you are a Christian? And you, and you ask them that question, and they say, well, I have believed the word of the gospel, okay, good enough. But then you look almost in vain for any evidence that they have experienced the power of the gospel in their lives. Has it changed? Has it transformed them? Have they become something that they were not before the gospel came in power? Okay, having established that particular principle, I want to ask another question. Has the gospel come to you in power? Has the gospel come to you as an individual in power? You see... (laughs) Dealing with the Thessalonians here is pretty easy. That's easy business. We can all be quite comfortable when we're talking about them. But now I want to press the question upon all of our consciences. Has the gospel come to you? Has the gospel come to me? Not only in word, but also in power. If it has, it will produce in you. You will become what it produced in the Thessalonians. Now I'll remind you as we are going to enter in the period of examination here that, uh, and it's going to be intense, I trust, personal examination. 
And it's only the counterfeit. It's only the counterfeit which is to suffer from such close scrutiny and investigation. Go to the bank tomorrow morning and make a deposit. And if you have it, take five $20 bills out of your pocket or pocketbook and place it there on the teller's counter. And if she's collecting those bills from you and about to check your slip and stamp it, and pass it back to you, verifying that a hundred dollars has indeed been placed in your bank account. And she pauses for just a moment and says, Mr. Smith or Mr. So-and-so, please excuse me. I'm not quite sure that that fifth bill is the real thing. And at that point, the only thing that stands to suffer is the counterfeit. That's the only thing. If that bill is the real thing, she can look at it. She can look at it under a magnifying glass. She can scrutinize it. She can test it. But all she can do to assure you that it's the real thing is that it proves itself to be the real thing if it is the real thing. It's only the counterfeit that stands to suffer from such close examination. Is it possible that even as I'm going down this particular path that some of you perhaps are already drawing back thinking, oh no, don't do that. Don't, don't place my professed interest in Christ under the magnifying glass. Don't do that, Pastor. Well, you have a solemn obligation, I would remind you, from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, to examine yourself and to prove yourself whether you're in the faith. And we do that by looking at the Word of God. And I know of no other passage any better to do that than this one for, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So notice, first of all, what was the evidence that the gospel had come to the Thessalonians in power? Well, the first evidence was that there was the impartation, you'll notice, and this is all we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at these three. There was the impartation of three basic Christian virtues. Look at verse 3. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing. And then he mentions three things. Number one, your work of faith. That is a work which flowed out of the grace of faith. Okay? And then he says your labor of love. That is labor that flowed from the grace of love. And number three, your steadfastness or patience of hope. That is endurance flowing out of the grace of hope. Now you see it was the presence of these three fundamental Christian virtues of which Paul speaks in another place in his epistles saying, and now abide faith, Hope, love, but the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. This trinity 
of Christian virtues, which we find no less than in ten passages in the New Testament, they are the fundamental graces of a true Christian believer. It was the presence of these graces then that were evidence to the apostle that the gospel had come to them in power. And because the gospel had come to them in power, Paul knew them to be the chosen of God. Therefore, we need to ask of ourselves and seek to understand something of what these three virtues are. And then the question opposed to ourself is, are they present and resident in me? Are these three virtues present and resident in me? First of all, he says, your work of faith. That is a life the characteristic of which was works that continually bore witness to the reality that the Thessalonians were men and women of faith. And in this sense, the most simple definition I know of faith is this. It is the hand that lays hold of the unseen spiritual reality revealed in the word of God. Initially, it is saving faith which reaches out to lay hold of Jesus Christ as the only hope of a sinner's forgiveness. They lay hold of him in the sufficiency and perfection of his work as mediator and savior. You see, saving faith always gives birth to the disposition of faith so that the man who is justified by faith begins to walk. By faith. The totality of his life, his entire life, begins to be regulated by this unseen world of spiritual reality as revealed in Holy Scripture. He says with the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 18 While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, why? For the things that are seen. Or temporary. You know what Paul's saying there? This is a radical view. He's saying this material world that we look around, can see and feel and touch, it's all temporary. He says, you know what's everlasting? What's eternal? He says, it's that unseen world of spiritual reality. That's reality as it is. But the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. He's telling us that our whole perspective is not governed by the things which we see and touch and feel, though we live among them and partake of them. No, no, he says we're governed by this world of reality that we cannot see. Is that the description of your life this evening as a Christian? That's a question that you must ask of yourself. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Our gospel came to you in power because it's nothing but the gospel attended by the power of the Holy Ghost that can take creatures like you and like me 
whose affections are wedded to this earth, to our flesh, and to the world of sense and time, and wrench us loose from all of that. Only the power of God can affect that and then fix all of our deepest longings and all of our greatest interests to fix them and anchor them and attach them to this unseen world of spiritual reality. But then look at the second fundamental grace, he says, is this labor of love. There was this work which flowed out of love. Your energies being directed to values that are what? That are heavenly and eternal. But then he says, and he uses this more intensive word for this second virtue, your labor of love. This labor under, unto pain and agony. He says, it is that which produced in you love. And the best little working definition for love in this study I know is this. It is that selfless affection that takes delight in or, or has the best interest of its object in view at personal cost. Love does not seek its own. 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Here they are laboring and tolling for whom and for what? For the Savior that they had come to know through the preaching of the gospel at Thessalonica. And when people saw them laboring in ministry, even unto agony, and they asked them, why in the world are you doing this? Their response would be, for the approval of my Savior. What re return do you hope to gain from this? The smile of my Savior. And then some worldling would say, well, let's get practical. You know, uh, what, what's all that? And you say, this is the most practical thing in all the world. Because I'm serving an unseen Christ. I am laboring under this unseen world of spiritual reality. You see, this is what Paul saw in the Thessalonians in those early days when he was among them for those three Sabbaths. And apparently reports began since that, that those days to filter back indicating that they were still being motivated by their love to the Savior, love that produced labor for him. And I think this is one of the mysteries of the gospel that separates it from all false religions in that the more pure our understanding is of the freeness of God's grace the more diligently you and I labor to please the one who bestows that grace upon us. All false religions say lab labor to gain this God's favor. The Christian message is embrace his favor, though undeserving, and then labor to prove your love to that one who has favored you freely. 
Now, is that grace in your heart this evening? You have a love for the Savior that moves you and motivates you to do things that cause worldlings to look on with amazement and scratch their heads and say, what in God's name is wrong with that fellow? What is wrong with that lady? He, she does what they do for no return whatsoever. He could be doing this. She could be doing that. They could be, you know, what is it that makes such a person like that tick? And the answer should be, the love of Christ constrains me. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. That's it. And when the gospel comes in power, it not only proclaims the love of God to sinners, but it also implants love to God in the heart of the sinner. So that freely forgiven, he fervently loves. Is that true of you? As a professing believer, Peter had no reservations about describing Christians with that beautiful little phrase in his first epistle, whom having not seen, you love. There again, there's that world of unseen spiritual reality. That's the description of a Christian. Here she loves an unseen Christ. And do you know how you know that you love him? People can sing some lovely songs about loving Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what is the primary commandment that he gives? He says, love those who say that they love me. John 13, verses 34 through 35. 1 John chapter 4, verse 21. You see, that is where love is put to test, to the test. People can sing very lovely songs about loving Jesus and offer some sincere testimonies, it seems, about loving Jesus. But what does the Lord Jesus say? The Lord Jesus says, in essence, if you really love me, then here is the proof in the pudding. Here is my, one of my imperfect followers or disciples. And I'm going to place that person right there in the pew beside you so that you can see all of his imperfections and defects. And then God says, now you love that person. That's where love is put to the test, is it not? Isn't the Lord gracious how he hedges us up from our sneaky and devious ways? Otherwise, we'd think around, <laughs> sit around thinking, you know, wow, I'm really loving the Lord with great fervor and with great zeal. And then the Lord puts one of his imperfect children right there in the pew next to us and he says, you love me? And let's see how you get along with the fellow beside you. Yeah, Lord, but he does it. And the Lord says, yeah, I know all of that about him. And I know a whole lot more about him than you do. But you love him. That's the acid test. If you love the Lord Jesus, then you love 
his people. And he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his, keep his commandments. And what is the commandment? That you love one another. Do you see the cyclical reasoning of John throughout his first epistle? Beloved, let us love one another, for love, he says, is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God. He who does not love, John says, does not know God. Why? For God is love. And how is love shown? John tells us that. He says, if you see your brother in need and you shut your heart up from him... How does the love of God abide in you? How is it there? You see, you don't need like some mean, low, depraved creature might do when he sees a man in need, walks over there and simply stomps on him. No, the Lord says, just look at him in his need and fail to open your heart and fail to respond to that need according to your ability. And God says, how does the love of God dwell in you? The biblical reality is, is that God's love is never a dormant principle. It is never a sleeping principle. Uh, when he implants it in us, it's never a dormant principle that simply is looked at and admired like some beautiful diamond ring enclosed in glass or like the beautiful crown of some queen or king placed on display for people to gaze at. No, the love of God is always moving outward to its object. Always, always to the ones we love. God so loved the world that he gave. Love moves out to its object. In this, the love was God, of God was manifested towards us that God sent his only begotten son into the world. And though the degree is never the same, and though the quantity is never the same, nonetheless, the quality of love implanted within the heart of a man or woman to whom the gospel has come in power is the same as God's love. Amount of love, never the same. Extensive purity of love, never the same. Amount, never the same. But it's the kind of love that is willing to respond according to ability to the need of a brother or a sister. Is that grace of love to God, the triune God and the people of God, is that active within your own heart as a professing Christian, moving you to bear with their weakness? And there are always weaknesses to bear with. We may call our brethren on them, but there are always weaknesses with which we have to bear. In the words of Peter, to cover a multitude of sins. Do you profess to love God? While your eyes are two huge magnifying glasses, perhaps three inches thick, focused upon every fault of your brother or sister? No, you see, love in this way has a wonderful way of putting blinders on your eyes, seeing the fault and saying, yes, Lord, 
that is sin. But I myself am so encompassed with sin. And I'm not talking about the kind of sin that requires church discipline. That's another subject. But Peter says it covers a multitude of sins. Those areas in which all of us yet need the sanctifying grace of Almighty God. And then he says this last, this third of the trinity of virtues. He says there was this steadfastness or patience of hope. That is an endurance that persisted in the midst of hardship that was rooted in hope. That fervent yearning within the heart of a believer. Confident expectation and patient waiting for the promised blessings of a completed salvation. And he said that hope put within their breast when they were called of God, it produced what is called endurance, steadfastness. They were confident that the best was yet to come in spite of their present hardships. I think a new worldliness has invaded the church today, even within otherwise orthodox reform circles. And it says, look, here's where the action is, here and now. Let's not talk about heaven by and by. Let's roll up our sleeves and get with the issues here and now. It's true that there is a proper nowness presence about the gospel. But my friend, if I have any acquaintance with my New Testament, again and again, the whole perspective of the Bible is that the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. And the best we'll ever know in this present age is a mess. Now, I'm not a pessimist who says that there's nothing else that we should expect the Lord to do. Let's just dig a rut, lay down in it and say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I'm not saying that. I don't believe that's the way that prayer was offered in John's revelation. It was prayed by a man who in the midst of his suffering was encouraging other suffering Christians. And how did it encourage them? By showing them from one perspective after another that the Lord Jesus Christ is king. And that he is going to conquer all of his and our enemies. Even as we saw in the catechism this morning. And that all of his enemies shall be vanquished and laid at his feet. Whether John shows him as the lamb in the midst of the throne who prevails to open the book. Whether he shows him as the one coming upon his white charger and his vesture, it's dipped in blood. What is the whole perspective of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ? It is the triumph. It is the victory of the Son of God over all of his and our enemies. And I'm not speaking now of the pessimism that says we cannot expect to see the gospel capture perhaps even whole communities and influence whole nations. I'm not saying that. But I am saying 
that even the greatest triumphs we may witness will, will nonetheless be incomparable to the triumph of the fact that the best is yet to come. Otherwise, I think you and I would get too settled in this old world. And so the hope within the breast of the Christian is a very real thing. And I ask you this evening, as I wrap this up and bring all of this to a close, is that hope within you? Is it present and resident within you? Is your life governed by it? Is your whole perspective normed and ruled by it? Well, this is the first thing that Paul mentions in this passage. The effect that it has, this trinity of these three virtues, when the gospel comes in power. There is the impartation of those three basic Christian virtues. Now, they need development, granted. They need to be cultivated, granted. But if they have not been implanted in you by the power of the Holy Ghost, then the gospel has not come to you in power. And you have no biblical grounds to claim that you're a Christian. For when the gospel comes, not in word only, but also in power, that is the first effect. There is the implantation of these three Christian virtues. May God grant that the same gospel which changed and transformed and turned the world upside down in the lives of the Thessalonian believers will likewise come to all of those among us who are lost, not in word only, but also in power in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Let's pray.